Hey everybody, it's Rob Liefeld and you are listening to Rob Observations, yet another brand new edition, freshly unwrapped, not yet bagged and boarded and uh, and put away in the box. This is a fresh edition, hot off the internet, sound press. Um, guys, welcome. Thank you for listening to another uh, edition of uh, Rob Observations where we talk about comic books and pop culture. And uh, today it's going to be a lot of fun because we are going to like I look at how comic books are made. And, and we're going to do it across a broad spectrum of how people make their comic books because no two comic books are made the same. But it's pretty ironic that we sit here and we talk about comic books. I talk about comic books all the time. And, and I've given you some, some broad history, some deep dives, backstories, how the Wolverine epic... Uh, a miniseries by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller was born on a drive from the San Diego Comic-Con up to L.A. post, you know, Comic-Con 1982. Uh, you know, the, 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 the conversations that have flown, the, 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 the interviews, you know, I loved reading all of the great comic book uh, uh, interviews. There was a real thirst for that stuff when I was growing up, and then then it became real teeny bopper. The, the the biggest crime, you know, Wizard Magazine did is it made everything stupid. Uh, comics Journal, Amazing Heroes, Comics Feature, these, uh, the, the Comics Interview Magazine, oh my gosh, those four did deep, deep, deep dives into the, uh, you know, process. Uh, told you what writers were thinking, artists were thinking, how they approached things. Um, to start out, Wizard tried that, and then they threw journalism in the trash and just wanted to become uh, the the comic book equivalent of Teen Beat or Seventeen, and those are also aging me because they are references to the uh, Teeny Bopper pinup magazines of uh, of of my youth that that were all over newsstands, which took whatever hot teen actor who was in whatever teen series or teen movie and plastered him everywhere, and. Uh, you know that 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 was what was applied to the Wizard magazine uh, later on, and and they had some features on how to draw comics and stuff like that that I know people appreciated. It, it was lost on me as I was already making comics long before they started. But getting back to the the really good stuff, that the Comics Journal was where you went for a thirty page interview with your favorite creator, and uh, then they'd have these uh, great. Uh, comics journal they'd compile all, all the Frank Miller interviews you know in one magazine so so the Frank Miller interviews over a couple years which could be hundreds of pages of looks into how he uh his his insight and his application how he went about doing his process it it really uh th- th- these treated comic books as an art form not a collectible medium and comic books, that's the dance it's always going to do. It's always going to do this dance of are we a collectible? Are we an art form? Are we a little of both? I mean, you know, it was funny in the last couple of years. I don't know if you go to your, uh, okay, before we were all in a pandemic and we would go freely to Target or, you know, wherever we frequented. My, my two biggest uh, haunts for DVDs, uh, Blu-rays, 4K, all that stuff was Best Buy and Target. And, uh because suddenly they had special editions of both. So now the movies that we uh, buy 
uh, with their high 4K resolution, were coming with trading cards with different covers, and uh, some had holograms, some had lenticular, uh, which is lenticular is the word for when you look at it a little to the right, the motion's going to the right, and if you look at it to the left, it's going to the left, okay? Um, that you know, the posters, they just suddenly, you know, the 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 the, the uh, metal boxes of which I was caught up in as well. So they, they turned our DVDs collectible. So collectability is fun. Funko Pop uh, thrives on it. I have got uh, cupboards full, shelves full of Funko Pops. So I, I'm I'm aware of the collectability because I participate in it. I help build it up. You'll never get. Uh, a look down your nose at collectability for me. That's that's not my game. I am part of that game. I I, I contribute. I will buy multiple variant covers on a comic uh, because I like the artists who draw them. Now, if, if they're going to do 17 covers, I'm not buying 17 covers. It's got to be covers I like. There have been comics lately by both publishers that I've just passed all of them up. Um, maybe at, at the end of the day because the insides or what we call the guts are good, I'll just buy the, the cheapest version of that. And I know so many of you, again, because of social media and our interactions on there over the years, you guys have let me know that's that's what a lot of you guys do. You're not in for the, um, the chasing of the more expensive uh, variant covers. But that is all part of making comic books. And what we do here is we talk about comic books. And when I reference these interview magazines and, and, and uh, all the different... Uh, uh, books that were put out on the different creators in the in the 90s in the 80s uh you know george perez had multiple books put out on him focus on george perez art of george perez george perez accent on the first e is like the name of a book accent on the first e was like the first kind of dedicated uh george perez uh, uh square bound kind of art of book and then there was the art of john byrne and um about three or four of those there was x-men compendiums the x-men companions that gave you the most in-depth interviews and i've reread those like constantly especially uh when i'm talking about these books i go back and i want to see if i missed anything and lo and behold even in the last couple of weeks i missed some of the stuff that i thought was already etched into my brain so deeply about the process uh about how these guys collaborated and so today we're going to talk about making the comic books. How do we make the comic books? How have the greats made the comic books? And it and you are going to be shocked at how it varies. Um, I'm going to actually go backwards and tell you that the most dense, densely written scripts are from uh, Alan Moore. He of the acclaimed uh, V for Vendetta, Watchmen, Swamp Thing, uh yeah, you know, um, um, oh man, there's the Jack the Ripper movie book based on his based on his acclaimed uh, From Hell. It's called From Hell. From Hell. Uh, Alan Moore, look, everything he does is fantastic. He even won multiple awards when he took over a book uh, of of mine called Supreme, and it was during this time that I got to know him the most and the best, and. Uh, the thing about Alan Moore's scripts is they are extremely, extremely dense. Beyond Supreme, three years of Supreme, we did uh, multiple issues of Youngblood. We did a mini-series called Judgment Day that was all total 100 pages. Um, 
There's some unpublished Alan Moore stuff that he did for us. Some some issues of Glory. He did some. Uh, he did a he did a show, he did a, a series for me called War Child that posed a really um, interesting dilemma in that uh, several my, not only myself but several of the best layout storyteller guys that I knew at the time couldn't crack that nut. And I'm going to tell you that the, the nut that I'm speaking of that, that couldn't be cracked is some of his descriptions. Now, Alan, I'd always heard how dense uh, his, 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 uh, his descriptions of panels and pages would be, but there, there are um, single space. I mean, this guy would fill up one page describing one panel. Case in point, I remember page one, panel one of an unpublished work by Alan Moore, War Child, was, began like this. Establishing shot of the city inside the, uh, across, establishing shot of the city. We are looking at uh, the exterior of a uh, of, of a hotel room, uh, which we can see into the window of the hotel room. On the TV, you know, something is playing, and then in the mirror we see the reflection of the character who is you know looking into a different room. Now that is kind of a uh, a a a little bit of a condensation of what he wrote. He wrote it in, in much greater detail. Everything that is on the dresser, everything that is laid out on the bed, and <clears throat> there were reflections in the window. But this thing is dense. And you sit there and you go, okay, I have to show like five different actions here. I'm establishing the city and the building. So I'm, I'm you know, my first view, first thought was it's an aerial shot. It's got to be a bird's eye view looking down into, because we've got to see what's on the bed and what's on the dresser, but then there's reflections coming from the mirror as well as the TV. And look, it's it's a tall order. And uh, I, I remember the, every panel on the first three pages is like that. And I gave it to the granddaddy of uh, layouts when it was twisting my brain into spaghetti. I gave it to Jim Valentino. And uh, we were buds. And uh, he taught me every great... Uh, layout and design trick I ever learned. He focused me. He he taught me, you know, what was important in regards to storytelling and the information and moving your eye through a page. So I decided I'm going to give it to Jim. A couple days later, Rob, I can't crack this. Uh, th th this is way too hard. I, I I'm I'm it, it's a pass for me. I, I'm not doing this. I, I took a couple shots, and I was like, oh my gosh, he broke Valentino. I uh, I gave it to Marat. Young eyes, younger. I said, hey, what do you think about this? And we're at, it's like, I, this one is a real, this is difficult. Again, everybody kind of sat in it for a couple of days. And uh, then we, we, we kind of shelved it for a while because, um, look, here's the deal. Alan Moore is a brilliant writer that is undisputed. He's more of a novelist. It's interesting to me that he did not go more of the novel approach, but I know that he would tell you that he's such a fan of comic books, such an avid fan of words and pictures that there is no way he would not want to be doing comic books. He didn't want to be a novelist. And maybe he doesn't break out as a novelist. Maybe he knew that his stage to make a big name for himself would be all these dramatic reiterations of Miracle Man or Swamp Thing. And then later, the, 
the the you know the the Charlton heroes as Watchmen. I mean, maybe he knew that 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 Stephen King already had that stuff you know sewn up, um, and 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 he wouldn't be able to to compete on that level. I I don't know. My assumption is I know that Alan loves comic books, so he wanted to do it in comic books. And and again, getting back to nobody does comic books for money. People do comic books because they're passionate and they're semi-crazy. We're all semi-crazy to let this stuff consume us. I go to bed thinking about comics. I've already bored you guys by telling you I can see when my wife's eyes glaze over and she goes, oh, I love you, Rob, but we're going to do comic books for 20 minutes now. Okay. And she locks into that. Uh Uh-huh. Occasionally, occasionally, I can uh, can entice her. Uh, the, The story that her and her family, to be honest still remembers the most is when I was breaking in and we weren't married. We weren't even engaged. I just had, you know, my intense fondness for joy in her family. And I, uh, I told them about John Byrne did an issue of Alpha Flight where there was a snowstorm and for multiple panels, there were six or four panel grids that were just all white with sound effects and with uh, word balloons. And that this is the way you beat a deadline is you set something in a snowstorm. I think it's legendary. People in the comics who are listening right now immediately go, ding, I remember this like it was yesterday. And Byrne actually boasted about it in interviews. Again, how would I know this? I read interviews about his process. And uh, he boasted that he got paid his full rate for that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, I had a dilemma of my own on X-Force. I was running behind on the deadline. And I believe it's X-Force... Maybe it's six, maybe it's seven. I don't have it, you know, in front of me. But it's I I had the um, characters knock out the lights. Now, everything did not go black, but all the characters went into semi-silhouette stages. Now, that meant that their faces and large elements of their legs and arms went to all uh, silhouette, straight, straight up black silhouette. Um, but I would put the pouches and the shoulder pads on cable and the straps and all that stuff. But it just, it, but I, it, it works it works because I knocked the lights out. And um, there are some people's styles who are very much that uh, one rung above the silhouette that I told you. But that was my deadline cruncher because I was like, I can't do the John Byrne. I can't turn everything black. That's such a cheat. But um, you know what? Uh, I, I, I My version was elaborate action with all sorts of silhouetted figures. Um, but again, as the writer of X Force, I could pull that off. And and uh, had that been a script that I had received from a writer, I'm not sure I would have had the cojones to to take that on and to tweak that in the way that I did. But because I was the writer, I go this gap right here. I need to fill this seven page gap. I inked those pages watching NBA playoff games. I believe it's you know the '91 uh, playoffs. Uh, on my buddy's couches, had all my 11 by 17 pages. Now, again, I could have I gone even further and made them eight and a half by 11 pages because we're talking about making comics today. And I'm on Alan Moore and his incredibly dense uh, scripts. So so a, a script for Alan for a 22-page book is normally in the 40-page range. He, he details out in such length every aspect that he wants. And it, it works for him. There's no there's no denying that it completely and totally works. But that is his methodology to completely take over. Now, where a guy like a Dave Gibbons gets all the acclaim is so much of what Alan asked for is steep. I mean, it's it's very much from a 
deliberate perspective that is very hard to veer away from as I was describing the war child page description. This building inside the window, what's on the bed, what's on the TV, what's on the reflection. And I forget, it, it's what the guy was doing in the reflection. It was, again, it was a tall order and it, and, it, and it really carried through the entire page. And obviously you see a master like Dave Gibbons who had come from the UK uh, drawing comic books over in London. Then his first uh, and, and what I mean by that, they, they had their own kind of um, warrior magazine, their own subset of, of, of comic books and comic book publishers. Dave Gibbons came over here and I got to know Dave Gibbons on Green Lantern. And I thought he was fabulous. I loved all his issues of Green Lantern that he did with Len Wein. I thought they were just phenomenally fun comic books. They were big. They were action-packed. They, they, they were splashy. Um, they, 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 they had really colorful villains and, and uh, you know... He, his run on Green Lantern is, is a real treat. It predates Watchmen. But then Watchmen arrives. And then Dave Gibbons becomes this surgeon, this, you know, with, with ridiculous precision in the way that he executes Alan's um, mystery novel. Because it really is a mystery novel. And so many of the clues and the, the, the very specific direction uh, had to be executed to the uh, exact you know, uh, uh, perspective of what Alan was looking to accomplish on each page to make it sing. But the work that went into those pages is however long it took Alan to write them is not nearly what it took Dave to pencil and ink them. And, and again, Dave Gibbons uh, just deserves his own special award. Now, I read a couple Swamp Thing scripts that my buddy Jim Valentino got his hands on from Bassett and Tottleman, the two artists that were doing it. And again, same thing, very, very, very heavy on deliberate description and uh, camera placement perspective. So that is a style of comic. If that style is the style of comic that you dig, then no one ever did it better than Alan Moore. But I started at kind of the most difficult, most densely, uh, 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 you know, deliberate perspective writer uh, in the history of comics. I have worked from Chris Claremont's scripts. He was kind of the guy who was dense before Alan, but that's like nothing. A, an X-Men screenplay, uh, an X-Men script, like the one that I drew, uh, whatever issue, I think it's X-Men, is it 245? Uh, that issue was super fun. Very, gave me a ton of room to grow. There's a double pager where the aliens that are about to invade Earth in my issue of X-Men. And it's got a comical twist to it because it's based on, it's kind of a send-up of DC's invasion uh, series that was going on at the same time. It said, a uh, double pager, uh, it, it said a, a, a half double page across two pages two and three. And uh, we're overlooking a ton of aliens. Now, in same situations, I'd seen George Perez do either full double page with gatherings of heroes or partial, you know, uh, double page splashes um, where he had any, and, and his default was he did the down shot. I've done the down shot too. It's, 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 it's very, uh, it's actually easier than you think. Cause once you start drawing the 
head and the shoulders. And by the time you're down to the torso, that body disappears if it's behind the body of another head and torso and shoulders, which is behind a head and torso and shoulders. The only people who really you have to draw their legs are the people in the front if you don't crop them a specific way. So a down shot across a couple pages or just a down shot gathering of heroes can be um, can, can, can be very time uh, effective. It, it, it's not, it, it, when you look at it, you, you may be like, wow. I mean, I remember uh, the cover to Contest of Champions, which, we, which we've covered here, the very first comic book miniseries. Marvel did it um, after the Olympics got scrapped and, they, and they, 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 they scrambled and they did this Contest of Champions. John Romita Jr. draws it. And I believe the cover is this downshot, exactly what I'm talking about, where no one's legs are seen. The only people whose legs are seen are someone rising from the back or someone in the very, very front, and normally those are cropped a little tighter and higher because they're from that uh, extended bird's eye view. And and given that bird's eye view, again, maybe you get to some of the characters' waists and groins max. Um, again, a character like Captain America, you just put that shield right in front of him and it covers X amount of, of space. So on my X-Men description, Chris didn't tell me he wanted a down shot. He didn't tell me he wanted a low angle worm's eye view. He told me that he just wanted a uh, just to be spread across pages two and three, a partial uh, double page that showed tons of alien races. And that's it. He did not get specific. I then put uh, the Xenomorph from Alien. I put um, ALF from TV. I put E.T. There was, uh, there was a, a comic book out at the time called The Griffin, which, had, which was about alien kind of... Uh, super races and I put those characters that I like the most in there I put Chewbacca I put Boba Fett I put Yoda um, I stacked that thing I put Nexus which is an alien hero from an independent comic I went out of my way to just have a blast Chris did not dictate dictate that to me in the slightest later on we go to a reporter's uh, room uh, in in the uh, in the issue and I deliberately made the reporter look like Clark Kent no one calls him Clark Kent, but he looks like Clark Kent. And if, if you see, you go, oh, that's obviously Clark Kent. Um, he gave me, Chris gave me enough room to have fun, uh, you know, with what was going on. On, the, on pages two and three of that, I believe it's issue 245, the only X-Men issue I've ever done, is, uh, is, is it then said it has inset panels. And it gave me the dialogue and the intention of what these people were saying, but it wasn't full script. So that is called a plot method. And the plot method is what Marvel Comics was uh, was born on. And, and it is also what DC Comics thrived on for many, many years. And apparently this is what was started with Stan. Uh, uh, the, the Marvel method was a method with which a, a, a construction of a story could be created without the time-consuming aspects of all of the very specific perspective um uh, uh, direction. You know, I don't mean perspective as in uh, worm's eye view, medium establishing shot, uh, bird's eye view. Uh, I, I don't mean that. I mean the pers Alan Moore's particular perspective. You know, he he may say that he wants it shot tight over character A's shoulder. You know, while character B is lighting a cigarette with his you know left hand. It's very specific. That is not what was going on with the Marvel style of plotting, which is what built the Marvel Empire. Now, presumably, and from every interview I have read, and I have read hundreds of interviews between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, 
is much of the Marvel plot method was Stan knowing what he, believing he knew, what he wanted out of every single issue, but not having the time because he's running the company and he's the face man and he's, he's, he's definitely, you know, in the office in New York City, kind of directing the command center. It gave him an opportunity to give his artists stuff to draw because they needed to get paid and you can't get paid unless you're drawing. And uh, so, so guys like, you know, uh, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, later John Buscema, John Romita, um, Don Heck, would have pages to draw based on a broad outline. Now, you know, the, 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 the most, uh, the, the, the biggest at the time, I guess, uh, Marvel style plot, let's call it a cheat code, is uh, one that I read that John Romita Jr. would receive from uh, John Byrne when John Byrne was writing Iron Man. In, the, uh, in John Romita Jr.'s second tour of duty on Iron Man after his first one with David Michelini and Bob Layton, he worked with um, John Byrne, and those were some really great uh, issues of Iron Man. They were bigger and bolder than what uh, J John Romita Jr. had done his first time around. Uh, slightly less slick because it didn't have Bob um, and, and also less intricate in, in, in the amount of soap opera it was telling. But the, uh, the pages, a lot, a lot of splash pages, a lot of double splash, splash pages, it was much more visually geared and that is 100% because you had a artist writer at the helm with John Byrne. But the cheat code I'm speaking of is in multiple interviews, John Romita Jr. said that John gave him one page for the whole book. And it was a basically a description of here's what I need in the first few pages, here's where I'm heading in the middle, and here's where we end up. Now, most guys are super capable and can pull that off. I can pull that off. All my image brethren can pull that off. John Romita Jr. did pull it off brilliantly. And he was able to, because he was at that point, had drawn hundreds of comic books between his uh, run on the original Iron Man, on X-Men, and on Daredevil, and on Spider-Man. I mean, Romita Jr. had logged some serious miles, and his dad is comic book royalty, so he grew up, you know, understanding every aspect and dynamic of comic book storytelling, page design, layout, drawing. So when I read that, wow, John Byrne is, and, and look, John Byrne has every right to get paid for 22 pages of plot on that, because as long as he has given John Romita Jr. enough to fulfill 22 pages, he then scripts it once the, the pages come in. So the finished story by John Romita Jr., you know, maybe pages one through five uh, is is Iron Man is in the midst of uh, piloting, uh, of carrying a shuttle back into re-entry. We're going to establish that the uh, mechanical failure uh, put the, star, the, the space shuttle into a tailspin. Iron Man is going to guide this back down to the ground. Uh, splash page should probably be the shuttle in free fall. We then see Iron Man come upon it, guide it safely onto the ground, and by page five and six, he is escorting the astronauts out safely, having done his work. That gives John an incredible amount of leeway in regards to how he is going to depict that scene. That scene does not appear in any Iron Man comics. But imagine if it was just a fight scene. Open on Iron Man versus the Dreadnought. John, I need a six-page uh, battle here. Put Iron Man through his paces. Use his repulsor rays. Use use his chest blaster. Um, 
ultimately uh, have him gain the upper hand and put Dreadnought into the floor. Okay, that also is something that I could, that there are uh, at least a hundred guys that can go, oh, I can make that sing. And then maybe the middle is Tony Stark goes into Stark Industries. As he's coming off the elevator, he and Bethany McCabe, his, you know, girlfriend are having a discussion. He talks to Pepper Potts and then he gets a call from the Pentagon. I need a split screen of Tony Stark talking to the Pentagon. Um, some terrible news is dropped. His alarm goes off. Uh, Tony grabs his briefcase, opens it. We see the army. Uh, we see the armor cut to Iron Man flying out the window. Big splash here. Okay. We've now maybe just done another four, five pages, depending on what you choose to put your focus on. The plot method is what built the Marvel Empire. The movies that you have loved, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Spider-Man, Thor, Thor Ragnarok, okay? Captain America, First Avenger, Winter Soldier, um, the, the Infinity War, Endgame, maybe not Winter Soldier because that's in the 2000s. Um, Endgame, in the Infinity War. These are based on the plot method Marvel comics that I grew up with that I loved. Um, big time creative teams share of these plot method. Now, you're saying, well, Rob, is that a written plot? Not always. So check it out in so many interviews. Now, when Marv Wolfman and George Perez, who are kind of like a modern-day Stan and Jack, George Perez would give interviews in his art of books, the focus on George Perez, whatever he was doing in regards to his interviews with Amazing Heroes, he would talk, or Comics Journal, that Marv, because Marv was on the East Coast, no, Marvel's on the West Coast and George's on the East Coast. They would have a two to three hour plotting session on the phone. George would take notes. George would then draw the book based on the phone conversation, mail the pages to Marv. Marv would then script them. Okay, perhaps this is how everything they worked on. I know Titans was done in this manner because George said so, because Marv said so. That takes a tremendous amount of... Uh, trust in each other and um, shared ego in that the end product is better than whatever we could have come up with separately. So, you know, because they, Teen Titans was, you know, DC Comics answer to X-Men, younger heroes, diverse cast. The diversity came with the new uh, characters of Starfire, Cyborg, and Raven. And uh, I mean, that book took off and it was because those guys worked so well together and but by every you know intention that George was preferring to get the, the 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 plots verbally said to him over the phone, jot down notes on his notepad. And again, I've told you I stalked George Perez. I as a fan, I would just park myself to the left or the right of his table and 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 quietly observe, occasionally asking questions. Once George just said, "Sit down next to me. Watch me draw." You know, I'm going to do the sketch, and, and you can ask me whatever you want. And uh, what a sweetheart of a guy. And, and when he would tell me these processes, I was, I was fascinated. So Jack Kirby and Stanley have, um, they, they, their partnership did not age as gracefully as one would hope, given the acclaim both men shared at the time. And then certainly in the last decade of seeing all their characters become giant mega blockbuster, you know, icons. Um, Jack claims that so much of what he accomplished was phone calls from, from Stan. Silver Surfer is a bone of giant contention from Jack who says 
that, you know, hey, give me some sort of cosmic guy from space. Jack put him on the surfboard. Jack, you know, built up Galactus and, and the mythology. This is from Jack's point of view. I am now presenting what Jack has said repeatedly. Jack has said that so much of what he uh, envisioned was once he got the through line, the few sentences of what Stan needed, Jack understood that his job was to land the plane. You know, it, it's like Stan would fold up a paper plane and, and, and put it in the air. And, uh, and, and Jack would make, build the, 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 the runway, the tarmac that it could land on and, and, and guide its flight home. And suddenly you're on solid ground on, on, on foundation that Jack established. And that's how Jack would tell you. Stan offers some arguments to the contrary. None would be more powerful than, than written plots, but those are far and few between because Stan, again, says that he either talked to Jack in the office and Ditko, or it was through the same phone calls. Now, Ditko tells roughly the same story as Jack does in terms of the plot style method that so much of the visual representation of what you and I absorbed and loved was the responsibility of the artists. Now, that that is, I wasn't there. I can't take a side. All I can do is report what both sides said. Nothing would be more foundational than for to to sway it further into Stan's camp than for Stan to, you know, be able to produce all these written plots and and that, that he established. Now, <clears throat> Stan was a master of snappy patter dialogue, and there is no uh, denying that the final words and and the script and the thought balloons. The dialogue was Stan. No one denies that. And Stan was uh, better at it than most. Now, have I met in the last several years a couple of guys who said they ghosted for Stan? Yes, I have. That workload was so immense, I, I, can, I can believe it. Do I believe that Stan wrote every issue of Amazing Spider-Man? I do. I believe that was his baby. I believe he had the greatest affection for Spider-Man. I would say uh, Fantastic Four was made even easier by all of the dialogue notes that Jack would scribble down on the pages. If you've seen those pages, there's tons. But we're not here to, I'm not here to uh, argue Jack versus Stan or Steve Ditko versus Stan. What I'm telling you is the methodology that these books were created under. Um, Stan was the boss. If he's going to tell you, hey, I need the Fantastic Four to go to the jungles of Africa. We're going to meet a new civilization and we're going to meet a king there. And I'm thinking of making him based on a cat. Now, I, I don't know if it goes any more Deep, deeper than that. What I'm saying is, you know, that 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 is a generous framework of what would happen because Jack Kirby can absolutely create a 20-page story based on this. Why am I harping on this the most? Is because Jack grew very resentful, as is you know historically noted, of the uh, lack of credit that he believed he was receiving on all the work that he was doing due to the methodology of how they worked. And this is really where the story is leading. Jack leaves Marvel. In 1970, he arrives at DC. We've covered this. This is where he goes to DC. And he is so far ahead of his time, it's not even funny. But in fact, he was ahead of his time. And he created the new gods, Mr. Miracle. He took over Jimmy Olsen, and, and, and which became a pathway to the fourth world as well. He created the Forever People. Within those franchises, his dark side, Desaad, um, Mantis. Uh, I, I mean, good God. 
all the names, Orion, Light Ray, uh, uh, Bug. Um, I mean, you guys, it is, it is, uh, just ridiculous. Steppenwolf, um, um, beautiful dreamer. <laughs> I mean, Big Bear, uh, Mark Moonrider. These are just Oberon. Ama amazing, amazing, amazing. Jack flexed. He absolutely flexed and showed you exactly what he was capable of. He didn't stop there. Commandy, the last boy on earth. OMAC, one man army corps. Still one of my favorites. Uh, the demon. He, he just went on a tear over at DC Comics, but he wrote his own material. No one was going to block him from credit ever again. When you ask me, but this isn't about credit. This is about methodology. And here's the real kicker on the methodology. Suddenly, most Jack Kirby books opened with a splash page, which then prompted a double page splash. I'm almost certain that almost every, that, that nearly every issue of Commandy is splash, double splash. And he began to direct the books in a bigger, bolder, more exciting fashion. I believe that the 1970 to like 1978 Jack Kirby is the very best Jack Kirby of all time. He has all of his powers in play. His skills are in top form. And he is giving you exactly visually what he wants you to experience. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. He is completely constructing visual uh, just, I mean, these are visual comic book orgasms. They are like, whoa, whoa. I mean, it is amazing. I am looking through, uh, volumes of his work this last weekend, and I am still amazed that Jack Kirby did what he did when he did. Um, I think he is, he is without a doubt, as I've established, I, I think firmly the most accomplished, the most superior comic book illustrator of our time. You want a great guy that's going to draw you a great um, illustration, that's that's Neil Adams. Maybe a beautiful painting, figure drawing, fantasy work, that's John Buscema. But for the language of comic books, the visual stimulus that is comic books, there is no one who ever can even come close to touching what Jack Kirby did. The way he spotted blacks, the way he dropped shadows, the staging, again. But now these books are being told in a way that is meant to enhance the visual experience. He is catering to what he wants to draw and how he believes you're going to react to what he's drawing. This doesn't stop at DC. Fast track to when Jack comes back to Marvel. Again, Marvel, Jack never drew something from anyone other than himself again when he returns to Marvel and while he's at DC. Those works are written and illustrated by Jack. And the Captain America, when he takes over Captain America in 1976, when he takes over Black Panther, okay? Marvel recently did like, it feels like they're two foot tall, hardcover, deluxe. They're not even, they're, they are absolutely not coffee table books unless you put legs on them because they would indeed function as coffee tables themselves. This is Kramer's ultimate realization that a, a, a book a coffee table book as a coffee table is possible. And with the way that they are printing these giant tomes now, I mean, this Jack Kirby one they put out last year, it's got his Machine Man work, his Captain America work, his Black Panther work, and some of his Eternals work. Again, with the Eternals and Black Panther, splash page, double page splash, you know, four panels a page. Then a couple pages later, splash page, maybe another double page splash. 
you know, multi-panel pages than end on a splash page. He was able to create by writing and drawing himself the ultimate visual feast and people responded. There is a reason this man has was so prolific, was so infinitely hireable, um, uh, and, and was, was, was just giving us so much inspiration for so long. I'll take Jack Kirby's Black Panther over any Black Panther since. And they all semi owe something to him. John Romita Jr., uh, I believe in Reginald Hudland, took over Black Panther in the middle of the 2000s. And the Black Panther that John Romita Jr. is giving you is Jack Kirby's Black Panther. He is squatty, thick, um, very, very blocky in, in nature and stature. It's it's just it's it's some of my favorite Ramita Jr. work. It's it's beautifully told and rendered and colored, but it is very much inspired by that 1970s Black Panther work. And uh, and and again, Jack is his method in the making of the comic books were about visually stunning you. There is nothing better than a splash page and a double page splash to kick off a comic book. Now, who picked up on this as well when he got on the X Men was John Byrne. And Terry Austin, because once John comes in post the Dave Cockrum relaunch of the new X-Men, John is very slick and very pretty, but he also understands the power of the visual pacing. Really what we're talking about, whether it's an Alan Moore script or whether it's a Chris Claremont broader plot or whether it's Stan's phone calls, Marv's phone calls to George, is pacing. Comic books are about pacing. I have noticed that when writers write comics that, that aren't visually, uh, uh, that, that when the visuals aren't maybe the most um, predominant part of what they're envisioning, the comics get bogged down in the talking. And no one is going to do the talking better than Aaron Sorkin, Quentin Tarantino, David Mamet. These guys know what they're doing. The beloved Sean Connery left us about a week ago, a week or so back. And it was The Untouchables that got him his Academy Award that is written by David Mamet. There is one scene in particular that uh, Sean Connery in the church to, to, to convince Costner, Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, that he desperately needs to rethink his approach to handling Al Capone. I have always believed that that speech in that church got him his uh, Academy Award. It's the one where he's like... <clears throat> He sends one of yours to the hospital. I got a gravelly voice right now. <clears throat> he sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. Uh, terrible Sean Connery. But uh, that's the Chicago way. All right. That speech in that church, you know, won Sean Connery an Academy Award. So the, the sp spoken word is important, but you're not going to do it better than Brad Pitt and DiCaprio, you know, in the restaurant in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, it's just because you've got two master actors with their extreme nuance or anything that Aaron Sorkin has written. He gets some of the best actors, the best actors to deliver his ridiculously um, excessive monologues that don't seem excessive because we're so caught up on every enunciation. Sometimes I wonder why these long, thick, dialogued, scenes occur in comic books, there's certainly a place for them. The information dumps can be great. Uh, I believe the guy who does it the best in the modern age is Robert Kirkman. 
when Negan hit Walking Dead in the comic books, it was a different voice. He talked differently than everyone had talked so far. And he, I've always said to Robert, he felt like a Quentin Tarantino character completely busted down the door and walked in <clears throat> to The Walking Dead. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> what a great time to have a voice, uh, voice malfunction. He walks in to The Walking Dead talking like a Tarantino character, swinging that bat, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, crazy. But the next issue, after he, you know, slaughters Glenn, he, he talks to, you know, Rick's son. And that is the creepiest conversation. And uh, again, I've written, I've drawn from Robert Kirkman's plots. I, I believe the ones that we worked together on uh, were maybe less detailed as that scene and some of the stuff that he was giving Walking Dead. He really felt like he was... Uh, it, like more so like Alan Moore, he was specifically directing, you know, he wanted a tight close up of, of, of Negan, you know, talking to Rick's son and the tension that the profile of him leaning in, you know, speaking to a very aghast young man. And then when he asks him to take his mask off so he can see his missing eye and he laughs at him, that is a haunting exchange. Do I believe, I don't, I haven't read that but I've read enough. I haven't read that script. I, I haven't, you know, re read that specific one, but I've read enough when when Robert wants to go full Alan Moore, he's capable of it. When he wants to go more uh, broader, like Chris Claremont, he's capable of it. He definitely considers the artists that he works with. He's done enough books, 20, 24 titles, maybe more, that he has personally, um, you know, helmed. That, that I, and, and hand-chosen his collaborators. I know that Robert specifically, you know, guides each book uh, in a different manner. This is also the author of a book that, that I love called Super Dinosaur. And, and that book was obviously at a different pace than Walking Dead. Both of them immensely entertaining. And my favorite that Robert's done in the modern age is Invincible. Again, full script, uh, you know, occasionally a guy like Robert, and now we're entering into this area because I know that uh, our own, uh, when I mean our own, our own, like right now, the, the, the writer of the writer of 2020, probably the writer of 2019, most likely the writer of 2021 is Donnie Cates. We've all um, seen how he understands how things work visually. When I look what he's doing on Thor in Venom, he understands the double page spread, the splash page, the impact of a visual that punches you in the face. He is not hung up on diatribes and long Aaron Sorkin monologues. There is enough consistency in his work in the way that books written by Donnie um, are, are described that he is thinking visually on a giant canvas. Um, you just no, normally, especially today's guys who are on a much shorter, uh, uh, leash is the wrong word. Cause that, I don't think that's even PC to say anymore that the parameters on the artists in today's world, um, they have less movement unless they call and negotiate it upfront in, in the way that they can, you just can't go, Hey, can I take this one panel and make it into a double pager? Now guys from my age, we did, uh, Todd and myself, we did. I rewrote, I've covered, I mean, th there's a guy in wizard magazine. He got in a giant argument with me when he thought he was, um, you know, this gonzo, you know, journalist trying to, 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 to you know, he, he thought he was going to be some 60 minutes guy challenging me on my process when he's like, well, you rewrote this 
you know, your second issue of New Mutants or your third issue, the second appearance of Cable. And I'm like, yeah, I did. I did it with my editor's blessing. He thought there was a problem too. That's not the first time that's happened. I have been called in to change writers' work before. And if I'm going to accept the job, I'm clearly okay with it. And uh, one other writer that I did that with, specifically with that other editor, years later, years there's almost a decade apart, but... That writer was then not really working at Marvel much anymore. And Bob said, hey, I need you to completely come in and change this. I then visually polished it in a way that would make it bigger and, and sing uh, louder. Because I, I think that's what Bob wanted. I felt that that's what it needed. And that's what we accomplished. But in the process, how the comic books are made, is it a plot? Is it a full script? Is it a phone call? Um, are you, are you the, the guys who definitely want everything from a, uh, almost, uh, uh, suffocating point of view want to pound those scripts. They want to pound those scripts. Now, what happens again, when John Byrne on X-Men comes in and takes the Claremont scripts and interprets them and starts incorporating splash page, double page splash ends with a splash. This is the golden era of X-Men. Everything John Byrne did in the X-Men has been either duplicate, duplicated or sequelized. And, 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 and that's because that's where the big success of that work is achieved. Um, those cliffhangers uh, with Magneto rising from the shadows, those have been duplicated later in comics. Most of them by Jim Lee, who was profoundly influenced, as was I, by this John Byrne era. And again, it was very visual common Sauron has got storm it's an it's a downshot splash page of the x-men x-men backing up Sauron who's a pterodactyl man who's already you know subdued uh storm and has her kind of dragging her by her hair at, at his feet the next is a double page splash of of Wolverine leaping at him swiping at Sauron fist coming towards us full two full figures in a splash page for the a double page splash for the ages. You don't know what it was like in 1978 to pull that off the spinner rack to see page one and then page two and three and go, what am I watching? This is the best drawn comic ever. I mean, amazing. Now, when John Byrne leaves X-Men, it is immediately impactful. I did a, uh, uh, the, the, the Marvel Masterworks, uh, Marvel Masterworks. I just pulled it out. It's, um, the, the X-Men Marvel Masterworks, no, volume 90. It covers X-Men, uh, number 141 through through 150. And so it's got John Byrne's last three issues, and then you've got seven issues of Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum is a wonderful artist. It's great. The book changes completely when John is gone. That tension, John Byrne talked about this in all the interviews. He was very, very um, uh, uh, abrasive in, 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 his, uh, in his confessing that he was frustrated, that he felt he deserved more plot and story credit than what he was being given with Chris, especially in their last year together, as so much of what you were seeing was were the decisions that he was making and the and the arguments and the energy. And you know what? We've all seen great teammates. They don't last. Shaq and Kobe, okay? They don't they don't they don't like they're they're kind of the biggest of all the flame outs ever that people go, why couldn't they have just stayed together? They would have won seven championships. But that tension drove them apart. We've seen it. We've seen you know, we've seen LeBron leave Miami after that experiment failed to yield the dividends 
uh, of, of 10 rings or, or whatever. And, and we've seen when Kevin Durant came into the Warriors, okay? We, we, saw, we saw Durant and Westbrook crumble in Oklahoma City and that chemistry just be destroyed and that trust. And then Durant gets on a plane, comes to San Francisco, hooks up with the Warriors, and it's championship, championship, okay? We have seen this movie before. Creative tension, while sometimes uncomfortable, yields spectacular results. And when John Byrne left X-Men, he then took over the FF and went on a five-year tear that saw that achieve the highest heights it had ever achieved other than understand and Jack. It is celebrated to this day. It is the most brilliant complimentary run to the amazing 101 issues that Stan and Jack did. Um, and, and it's because John had something to prove. He had ideas of his own. He had mastered pacing structure. You want to talk about splash page, double splash, the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, X-Men, he did on a regular basis in Fantastic Four. It is his work, his first three years on Fantastic Four are nothing short of a masterpiece. It is the perfect compliment. It is my second favorite body of work that John has done after the X-Men. When he leaves the X-Men, Dave Cockrum comes in. He's a better artist than when he left. His figures are more refined. His They're more detailed. He's almost out applying almost a George Perez uh, approach that I can stack this these panels with multiple characters, which is hard. There are guys who actively avoid drawing team books for that reason. Dave welcomed it, but you can tell immediately the pacing is off. John Byrne has left the building. The creative tension is gone. Dave Cockrum is content to receive Chris's stories and just draw them. Um, there are now double pagers of machinery and landscapes and no longer these giant, big, bold figure, um, you know, clashes that, that, that excited young fans. And, 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 and some of the relational stuff that's going on. An entire episode guest starring the Dazzler and Spider-Woman and the creepy Morlock Caliban that John Byrne would have never let that, that go as is. The creative tension was gone. Um, when Magneto and, and the X-Men finally battle in, in X-Men 150, it didn't have that extra oomph. Um, there's one great Magneto splash page, which is, is a throwback to one of the great Magneto splash pages that Cockrum did early on before he, I think it's X-Men 104, but it's just not the same. The creative tension is gone. The book is very competent. It's done at a high level. I would say it's done at like the highest level that things were being done outside of guys named John Byrne and Frank Miller at the time. But you can tell that John, his pacing, that that friction was gone and, and the pacing changed. It was altered. This is all about making comic books. So let's get to the maestro of our age. That's Frank Miller. I'm just, we're not even going to have any build up. Let me just burn it out again. Frank Miller. When Frank Miller takes over Daredevil, it fundamentally changes not just the figure drawing, not just the action and all the martial arts great stuff that I've talked about in the past and the Eastern influences that are immediately, it's like a giant syringe just hit the page and he just injected it. His storytelling and pacing radically changes. So it now feels like you're watching a movie, and that's because of all of the um, the the horizontal, long horizontal panels um, that he would drop on each page, and the pacing and the movement within the horizontal pages. He was he was it was like he literally was filming figures. There would be click 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 of movement across the page. You were watching frames of a movie. That is. That is making the comic books. That is the approach. That is Frank going, I am now at the helm. I am the auteur of Daredevil and the pace will change. And the stories will be told 
more in the cinematic way that I envisioned them being told. And he did, and they're spectacular for years. And even when Frank uh, decides to not fully pencil the book and goes towards the end of his run, the very end, he does layouts for his finisher, Klaus Janssen, to fully pencil and ink over. And I've seen those layouts. They're in the books. They're printed. They're in the back. They're in the addendum or the, the, uh, the, the special features. You can see those layouts are so powerful because laying out the comic is what separated Frank from everybody else, his entire approach. Did he have splashes? Did he have double page splashes? Not as many as you think. It's a different mechanism. His storytelling was different, but no less thrilling and exciting. Any of these on its own or a heavy dose of them is too much. But the fact that we were getting peak Frank Miller and peak John Byrne at the same time, and along came Walt Simonson. He comes into Thor. He changes the pace too. The, 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 the book moves so much faster the panels, the pages, the power. He reestablishes the power of Jack Kirby, the power of the big, thick, bulky, bulky action figure and the big fists. The, 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 one of the things Kirby would focus on so much, especially if you look at Thor, is those fists battling each other because a fist is holding a mallet, battling a fist, holding a hammer or a sword. And he loved to throttle you with those fists. Walt brought those back. And 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 the pace, and the, uh, the and and Walt did return to splash page, double page splash. So much of the Kirby DNA was injected. And again, a giant syringe. Now, along the way, there's this guy named Keith Giffen, who not only does the best run on the Legion of Superheroes that I've ever seen in my life. It's one of the best runs in comics. Period. It's a it's a long, years long story called the Great Darkness Saga. It is brilliant. But Keith realizes that one of his strengths is as a storyteller and Keith starts taking jobs where he lays out books for other artists to draw none better than the Justice League when they relaunched it with Kevin Maguire and 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 the storytelling was fantastic it was effortless and it played to all of Maguire's strengths with his facial tics and different um, expressions and 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 Keith also knew that he had to inject a certain amount of superhero action, being that it was a giant superhero franchise, a flagship called Justice League, you know, their big team book. But it, he then played to the nuances of what his artists could create. And Kevin Maguire, you wanted to see those faces, those ticks, those, those expressions, that squint of the eye, that pop of the eye, that curl of the nose, that grimace, that grin, that smirk that, that he did better than ever, anybody. Giffen would then take what he started with uh, uh, Kevin McGuire and start laying out many other books. He started laying out books for me at Extreme during my Image era. And the way that he would draw his write his plots was he would draw them. You would get basically uh, what I would call stick figure Keith. You know, they, they were kind of blocky stick figures. He did them in ballpoint pen. He would lay out the pages for a Jeff John Johnson to draw on Supreme uh, or whomever was going to work from his layouts, he would basically draw the, the six-panel page, the four-panel page, the two-panel page, the splash page. And you would get these great 22-page layouts. Um, at Extreme, several books uh, were books that I laid out myself or had key guys lay out because the pacing and the presentation of the pictures, the making of the comics, was the utmost important to me. The way that book moves and feels. Bloodstrike number one. I laid the whole book out for Dan Frega, a young penciler who had just as many strengths as he had weaknesses. 
I wanted to accentuate the strengths and downplay the weaknesses. One of those weaknesses was his storytelling. Um, and and for, for his first job, I don't want to fumble. This book is on a giant stage. It's being sold. It's going to be seen by a million eyeballs, a million copies of Bloodstrike. But I can I know what he likes. He likes drawing tons of gear. That's why he got Bloodstrike. My my team with tons of gear, and he added gear upon gear and divots on top of dig divots. But he had a certain style of figure work that he excelled at. I decided not only would I play to that, but I would also push him. You're going to do stuff that maybe you're not comfortable doing, but it's necessary. And there are, you know, double page splash after double page splash. Dan delivered as well as any first time talent could deliver on Bloodstrike number one. It is a one of my favorite jobs. I recolored it a couple summers ago, reissued it, reissued a special edition of it. I highly recommend picking it up. It's so fun. You can see my energy, his very detailed, tight drawings, very, very stylistic. He had a really established style right out the gate. Was he reflective of all the image guys plus Art Adams? Yes, of course. But it's it's cool. He's, he still has his little Frega-isms in there. But the layouts are another way that the, that, the, that the business changed in regards to how we were making comics. From the detailed uh, scripts to the more generous open plots, um, which, again, you're not going to get better than John Byrne giving John Romita Jr. one page for an entire story, okay? Um, but then maybe you can. Maybe the phone calls from Marvin George are your thing. Or maybe you want an, a comprehensive encyclopedia, uh, the manner of which Alan Moore would dictate. All of these methods have met with tremendous success. All of them are very different. We didn't even get to the part about how uh, the comics are penciled and then inked and all the different tools and the crow quills and the brushes, but there's still time, plenty of time ahead for that. But uh, layouts became my chief uh, weapon with how I waged the war with my studio. I would see a talent. I, I've already mentioned a guy like Jeff Matsuda. I gave him his first layouts. I then saw he has a really grasp of good storytelling. He was off on his own. Marat Michaels, I may have laid out one early job for him. Then uh, from there on in, maybe on X-Force, uh, from there on in, he he took his layouts and and ran with them and and understood like I've got like I've explained to you guys before. We idolized all the same guys, whether it was Frank Miller, John Byrne, Jack Kirby, uh, George Perez, Walt Simonson. He understood. He spoke fluent comic book. The whole thing is that the reason for this uh, that this entire podcast is I woke up from a nap the other day. I'm I'm taking my power nap in the afternoon and I'm grab I, I walk by a pile of comics I hadn't looked at in a while. I grabbed them, I wanted to absorb them, I wanted to look at them. I'm like, I laugh at this because so often growing up, there was so many artists who said, Well, you've got to look at life drawing and study figure drawing books to 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 work in comics. Yeah, that's great. That's true. Bern Hogarth, you know, Andrew Loomis, th those those figure drawing books are fantastic. But comic books speak the language of comic books. And if you're going to do a comic book, do a damn good one. And by doing a damn good one, you're going to need to understand um, how to flow that information in the best possible manner. How to, uh, what, 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 what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want to be, have an exhaustive perspective that's very tightly constructed um, like an Alan Moore? And that doesn't always work for all of the mini Alan Moore imitators that there have been, and I think we're going to absolutely dive into that very soon, the Alan Moore imitators, which which just uh, hit the beach in, in 2000, and in the early 2000s, it was all guys who were trying to implement some kind of uh, uh, amalgamation of, of Aaron Sorkin, Tarantino, David Mamet, 
and Alan Moore, and, and some of them are spectacular flops, and they don't work because they're just choking on their own narrative. But the, the comic books, especially the Kirby stuff, like I told you, when Jack came back, when he departed from DC from 1970 on down, this guy dictates everything visually. It is my favorite work by him. And those comics sing. You are in and out of them in no time and you want to go back on that ride like your favorite roller coaster the minute you close the page. But uh, we have scratched the surface with making comics, the different approaches, full script, plot, phone calls, layouts. Um, th there is so much more to come. Th this is going to be a series, kind of a series of, of essays on making of the comic books. This was your primer. This was your opening chapter. Uh, much more to come. Guys, thank you for spending time with me once again. I love it. Uh, thanks for taking this this journey with me, this 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 talking of con comic books and concepts uh, and, and, and pop culture. I am on social media. Find me on Instagram at Rob Liefeld, at Rob Liefeld, on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Uh, I, I, am, I, am, I didn't get the Rob Liefeld on Twitter, but I got on Instagram both of those have blue checks so that you know that it's really me. It's the real deal, not an imitation. I'm on Facebook. I'm all over social media. Please drop by, say hi, interact with me. I love hearing from you guys. Uh, you guys know the drill. As always, please take care of yourselves, especially now more than ever. Be safe, and we will talk again real soon.